My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Louise Perry, who is a writer, a campaigner, and a columnist at the New Statesman. Welcome, Louise. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really happy to have you on because you're one of these um, these <laughs> dissident voices in in our current, uh, you know, um, I don't know. It's it's not anti-feminism. It's quite it's quite feminist. I would say at least your position, and you declare yourself as being a feminist. Uh, but you are a dissident voice. Would you? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> And um, you have a subsec, and the subsec is entitled uh, quite, quite uh, dramatically, I, I might say, um, "What is the case for being a frigid bitch?" So I'm, I'm curious, what, what is the case for being a frigid yeah. bitch? Yeah, I, I really like the word frigid. I think it's, I think it's funny. I don't know if it's something a word that's used as often in, in North America as it is here, but I, 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 I had a time of setting about kind of collecting all of these words that are used to describe women who are basically not as um, sexually open as liberal feminism would like them to be. And there's the, you know, the longest list and frigid, I think is one of my, one of my favorites. And I do think that I'm very interested in um, our current sexual culture. And I'm writing a book, which hopefully will be out next year on this subject, because I think that we've seen an actually really pernicious, pernicious swing towards pressure whereas in the past there was so much more pressure on women in the pre-contraceptive era to be um to be chased to um suppress their sexuality to be very very controlled you know i think that actually what we're seeing now which is so often interpreted as being progress and liberation is in fact the opposite i think it's just a reforming of that kind of male pressure on female sexuality and i think that it's 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 a culture that women very enthusiastically participate in, right? This isn't as simple as saying that this is just men telling women what to do and women sort of immediately following them. That's, I think that's a really crude sort of feminist analysis that doesn't work. What we're actually seeing is a, a changing of the incentives within the sexual marketplace that encourage women to act in ways that are not necessarily in their best interests. Um, and what I what I'm hoping for, and what I think actually is starting to, to happen, is that there is a reaction against that, a reaction against the kind of liberal feminist narrative on sexual empowerment, which I think is quite wrong. And part of it is just about giving particularly young women the confidence to to, to describe themselves, for instance, as being frigid, you know, to not be apologetic about having sexual boundaries. Um, I think that that is starting to happen. I'm actually quite, I'm quite optimistic about this. And I sort of think it was inevitable when you have this incredibly dramatic swing towards um, sex positivism, which I think has been embraced most fiercely by millennials, though obviously it, 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 it non-predates the millennial generation. I think that now we're starting to see 
much younger women coming through and men as well who actually kind of see through it and recognize that the, the, the claims made by sex positivism don't really stack up in the real world and that there are real costs which might be delayed but, but which are nevertheless really costly. Mm -hmm. And I think you've written on this as well, because um, the, the Zoomer generation, the, the younger kids, they, they seem to be less sex positive and, and sometimes in, in a pretty um, vehement way. Um, why do you think there's been this shift? Is it just people kind of waking up to the, the stark realities or why is this generation so different? It's such an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I, I one of the things when you look at the history of um, attitudes to sexuality, is it is quite typical for there to be a degree of roller coaster that people react against previous generations. Um, and, you know, we are not unique in having in demonizing, say, the 1950s. Like for us, the 1950s are often used rhetorically as this example of the battle days. You know, but this is not unique historically. You know, this is like the um, in Britain, the Victorians were famously puritanical about sex, and they were partly reacting against the Georgians, who were much less so. So to some extent, I'd say that we would expect there to be a degree of kind of oscillation. But I think that contraception is such a game changer that I think that in some senses, our era is, is unique. Like it's never been possible historically for people to have sex, people to have uh, heterosexual sex without the, the, the likely consequence of pregnancy. And I think that we we haven't come anywhere near reckoning with actually how significant that has been in terms of changing, not just sexual culture, but changing our changing the world, changing all of our societies. Um, and you, in a sense, you know that the like young women who are not actually fertile because of contraception, young women who who can have sex without consequences. I mean, in reality, we we actually know that contraception always fails. There's always a degree of there is always a degree of risk but that perception of straight sex being consequence free is something that we're still wrapping our heads around because the the woman who appears to be fertile but actually isn't is in some senses like an entirely different biological creature you know and i think that the in, the the in, intense sort of sexual liberalism which begins in the 1960s with contraception but has has really reached its apotheosis I think in this century where you have hookup culture and porn and the most astonishing kind of sexualization of public life in a way that is is actually it's very easy to forget quite how jarring that is you look back now on say the wonder bra ads from the 1990s I think it was only 1990 or something I thought I I looked it up recently and I thought I assumed it was from the seventies or something. You know that famous ad mm -hmm. um, with the with the push up bra, and it was causing like car crashes, and it was this incredible shocking thing. This is this is from like thirty years ago, and now imagine being shocked by lingerie ads on the street, right? Like there's just been this um, influx of sexual imagery to the extent that we're almost deadened to it. We don't realise quite how sexualised um, public life has become, and I think to some extent there was inevitably going to be a reaction against that. And I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder if Gen Z might be reacting against millennials or there might be a degree of kind of seeing through the artifice, particularly for young women who realize that actually um, culture very much comes at their expense. Um, 
or some other factors or some sort of other material factor at play because I think basically this all does come down to to people's material lives you know like I'm I'm like I'm a Marxist in that sense right and that I don't I, I believe that the, the ideology is all built upon this material base so I I this is one of the ways in which I'm quite um dissident <laughs> one of the ways in which I'm not mainstream feminist in that I don't think that we should understand the history of feminism over the last hundred years or, or more as or, or I don't think we should understand the ways in which women's lives have changed, which is very profound, as a consequence of feminist campaigning necessarily. I think we should understand it as being a consequence of how the material conditions have changed for women, um, primarily to do with things like domestic technology, the way that the economy has changed, all of this kind of thing. And this is absolutely true of sex, where suddenly we have not just contraception, but the internet and everything that brings with it. We have women... Um, inhabiting public life in a way that we didn't previously and yeah I just I don't think there are, there are necessarily very easy answers but I just I'm I'm really fascinated in how in how we should reckon with this and how we should kind of um how we can be uh encourage a kind of sexual culture and an incentive structure and so on which is pro-woman because I don't currently think I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word feminist because it's obviously so loaded but um, I don't think that a lot of what we're seeing in sexual culture right now is pro-woman. I think that it actually really undermines women's interests in lots of ways. And I'm hoping that at least part of the solution to that is just to um, encourage women to learn earlier than they currently are learning quite how high the cost can be. Because it's all very well learning when you're already in your 30s or whatever, how costly the, this, some of this is which is, I think, tends to be what happens, right? You kind of realise after the fact. Um, I'd really like it if women who are much younger could kind of be woken up to this fact, um, because currently they are being misled pretty egregiously. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, um, kind of Generation Z um, reacting to kind of the mythologies that the millennials have been brought up on. I don't know if you've noticed that there was a, a, a whole thing about Helen Keller, like there's a whole, a whole uh, group of, uh, of millennials um, that, oh no, of Zoomers that don't believe that she exists, or maybe believe that she existed, but don't believe that she, you know, wrote, wrote all those books being, you know, uh, deaf and blind, and that's an impossibility. And there are all sorts of kind of like zoomer conspiracy theories where they just really do not buy the the, the stories that they're sold and i think um if you were to look with a you know with sober eyes at the situation in the sexual marketplace um and if you were to kind of step away from the conditioning which we've been you know yeah you know the the buzzfeed uh, main main line that we've been served for what has been like 15 years now the the gawker media type uh, information um you would probably have much more clarity to see okay this is this is a dysfunctional system um and it might be that you know zoomers essentially just uh they just don't take prepackaged stuff uh as easily because they're they've been online for so long where it's like they they yeah they discredit things just by by their simple yeah presentation maybe maybe also they are in a position to see some of the um learn from our bad example in a sense you know <laughs> look at, yeah. to look to look at the and think actually we don't want this 
Yeah, I think um, you know, what was that the the New Yorker cover with the with the girl who was just sitting, you know, in her empty, completely filthy apartment and just having a Zoom date or something. And I think this is what what generations identify with this. I was like, you should not identify with this. This is not the way. This is not the way to live. <laughs> exactly, and I think there's there's quite a, a big contingent of the millennial women who, kind of, you know, willing or not, they do identify with it. They kind of it, it's it's kind of an aspirational lifestyle to be living in your crammed, you know, urban apartment and have the the cool job and be kind of silly and you know dirty and just you know just a, this kind of Chelsea Handler style feminism where you're, you're just random and you have all sorts of problems, but that's actually what makes you unique. Um, I mean, I've, I know this, this stereotype of woman, I, I've met them, and it, it is, is an identity. I mean, these, these women are called wine, wine aunts 10 years later, but, um, you know, while they're still young, there, there's kind of a, a dynamism, uh, you know, you know, you're, you're rebellious by doing that. But the truth is, you're not. And if you if I was like a, you know, 15 year old looking at that situation, I'd be like, yeah, this isn't as glamorous as you think it is, lady. So it's an... It's really time limited is the way is the key cost of it, right? Like it, it, it is very glamorous, but, but potentially, but you know, if we're living for 80 or even a hundred years, you really only have about a 20 year window where you can live like that, right? Because it's so tied to being sexually desirable and being sexually desirable is I'm afraid so tied to youth. So between sort of like, I don't know, 17 and 37, maybe is your window where you get to play that role. But then it's gone and it's devastating when it's gone. And, you know, like obviously Sex in the City sort of sets the template for this kind of Manhattan lifestyle, right? But now, you know, Candace Bushel has since said that actually she really regrets not having children, that actually there were all sorts of, all, all sorts of things about that lifestyle that actually she wouldn't now choose. It's kind of, and it's like ter it's like terribly too late, of course, for her and tragically. Um, but if you do tie your self esteem and all of your aspirations to living this very, very um, time limited, very elite lifestyle, that will inevitably produce disappointment. Yes, I um I remember reading a um, an essay by by Heather McDonald who. Um, she's, she's obviously a, a very astute critic of, of many things, but this essay was about uh, kind of the, the changing sexual norms. I think her, her argument was that, um, I think it was some, some time after the 1960s, let's say probably late 60s, early 70s, the, the standard changed from, um, you know, no sex as a default to yes, sex as a default as a consequence of, of uh, contraception. Uh, and that is, to me sounds like the kind of the ultimate game theoretic switch where, you know, even even from the, from the male perspective, especially because the woman became was put in a position to now defend her choice of not having sex with with a man, which is a whole nother argumentation you have to get into. And um, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that. I remember that essay. Yeah, it's a very, it's an interesting essay, very provocative. Um, yes, I mean, I think that in some senses, um, the Me Too movement, which I, you know, I have, I'm not, I'm not, I am not against the Me Too movement, right? I think it is, I think it's really, it's, it's important and necessary. I think though, in a sense, because it was so led by the liberal feminist mainstream, the way that it was conceptualized was as sort of, the sexual revolution being in a sense unfinished, 
you know, that we were, we were promised full sexual liberation and that sexual liberation is not being fulfilled because we are still being um, harmed by male sexual behaviour. And I, I think that actually this sense me, me too actually highlighted some of the inherent problems with sexual liberation, that actually, as, you know, McDonald argues, when contraception comes along and suddenly the expectation is that women will be constantly sexually available, we shouldn't be surprised when women are then having to sort of defend the boundaries of their of, of their bodies so much more fiercely. And the, I think in a sense, so much of what the, the way that sexual liberation is conceived is just purely reactionary. It's just purely an anti-sexual conservatism thing. So, you know, mm -hmm. as long as we, as we reject everything that came with bourgeois 1950s kind of sexual norm, you know, then that's, then, then we'll have achieved what we're, what we're aiming for. But actually, it's not that simple. There were all sorts of things actually in the more traditional norms, which, yes, restricted women, but also in a sense protected them. And when we just strip it all away and we no longer, for instance, have um, the... We, we, we don't have any kind of sex segregation, for instance. We don't have um, the kind of um, guardrails that are in place to guide young, inexperienced women who are basically very naive about male sexuality. Mm. When that's all suddenly removed, there are some women who flourish in that environment, but there are a lot of women who don't. And I think that in some sense, Me Too was uh, a recognition of that. And you had a, a lot of... Um, anguish pouring out from women who have been you know basically terribly terribly misserved and no real way of actually reckoning with it though because yeah. no because no one really no leading voices within the me too movement were really proposing anything that actually concrete i mean if anything like the things that are proposed by liberal feminism are like perfectly designed to increase sexual violence if anything things like encouraging women to participate in bdsm for instance, like participating in BDSM is a way of selecting your sexual partners for propensity to commit violence. Right? <laughs> like there is, no, I can't think of a single other way of like better filtering than to go seeking men who enjoy strangling women or enjoy beating up women, right? And yet you will read feminists saying absolutely with a straight face that say a good solution to sexual trauma is to is, is to experiment with BDSM as a way of like working through your trauma. Mm -hmm. like exposure and, therapy <laughs> and, yeah and and I, it, it just seems as though that the liberal feminist framework just cannot reckon with this um and so there's a lot of like i i do i, I this is why you know i'm, I'm absolutely not anti-feminist in any sense like I, I care deeply about about protecting women's interests and about issues like sexual and domestic violence but i'm just uh i i i i'm so disappointed in, in, in the mainstream as I think a lot of women are and I think that there is a we know that a, a really small portion of women identified as feminists and it's not because those women are pro-rape and pro-domestic violence right it's yes. because the feminist movement has, has not served them well and they, they recognize that 
Yes, it's it's also interesting to me that you know that the more sexual liberation we got, the the less we focused on actually educating women about the the realities of sex. Like you said, you know, there's just a lot of naivete. Uh, a lot of the stories coming out of Me Too are about women just really not knowing how to impose boundaries, how to actually say no. Like you know that that Palia brand Amazon feminism that you know she said, okay, you know you you want the pornography, you want the you want this this wild you know, Dionysian world, well, you have to take it by the horns and be that kind of woman to just, you know, be be out there and be fighting, fighting in the street. And, you know, not everyone can do that, number one. Uh, and number two, we've almost, I feel like almost weakened women to the reality of nature. Like we've, we've, told them, you know, this this whole thing like, oh, t tell men not to rape. Yes, of course, but the, the world is full of the, the night is dark and full of dangers. And that's that's one thing we haven't prepared them for. And just the simple fact of physical differences between men and women, you just can't get away from it. You know, like the vast majority of men can kill a woman with their bare hands and women can't do the same in reverse. You know, there's that there's that really immovable um, physical difference that I think possibly we are less aware of because we now live in societies which are less physical we're less likely to do manual work more likely to delay childbearing um there are all sorts of ways in which we're kind of removed from that physical reality but you know when it comes down to it a, a man and a woman alone together there is there is a power imbalance there which is which is very hard to overcome and so no matter your strength of personality like there's an, there's there's an element of risk that women carry that men just don't and I think that not enough people really realize that. And I think that we we do a terrible disservice to young women in particular when we don't tell them that. And I and I do, I do, I really, really, really do sympathize with the the aversion to victim blaming. Because the problem with it is that you inevitably if you if you if you tell women that they ought to do certain things in order to protect themselves, when women don't do those things or they're suspected of not doing those things, then they end up being blamed for it and the, and the perpetrators go free and so on. And, and that's absolutely a real fear that we need to take into account. But at the same time, we also do a disservice to potential victims when we don't tell them the truth. And I don't think that they are regularly told the truth. And I think what we end up doing is requiring that these young women learn it the hard way, um, which okay. is cruel, <laughs> basically. Exactly. I mean, there's just certain aspects to nature that, um, I mean, for, for one reason or another, we, we try to um, conceal from women or not necessarily conceal, but maybe wish, wish it isn't, we wish it weren't so and then try to kind of fashion society in that idea that, okay, we, we're just going to tell people to do good things, <laughs> and then they'll do them. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not how, how the world works. And um, <laughs> it's basically the strategy, right? Like, let's just behave like we're free. And then, and then it will all sort of fall into place, except of course, it doesn't. But I think that the, the liberal worldview puts so much emphasis on freedom, which has to, you know, freedom from norms, freedom from any kind of social constraint and also ultimately freedom from the body right and like what could be more restrictive than the female body in a sense i mean your body is wonderful and has this generative power to create new life but also that it, 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 we are smaller and weaker than men right we can't get away from that and we bear children and pregnancy is one of those things that um 
you know, like the baby's coming, there's nothing you can do about it. I think that, that, that being pregnant really kind of forces you to reckon with the hard limits of biology, right? Yes. And I think that, yes, <laughs> and I think that, uh, that that's basically incompatible with the liberal project, which is about, which is about ultimate freedom all the time. Um, which, exactly. is, which is hence the effort to try and, you know, so we, we so liberal feminism, feminism starts off by trying to resist any kind of recognition of psychological difference between men and women. And now we've got to the point where, you know, with the, with the whole trans issue, that even the existence of physical differences between the sexes is denied because people should be allowed to be whatever they want to be, right? And you, you, you can understand why, why, why that desire exists. You can sympathize with it, but it's just so detached from reality. Yes, um, exactly. I think the the trans issues is is kind of the the, the crowning achievement of of the the liberal of you know um, detachment from the body or the just essentially almost almost kind of a, a transhumanist project where you know you've um, you kind of mix and match your body parts uh, to 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 reflect the mood of this self self-making self that's behind you know pulling the strings from from behind your eyes and it's you know this kind of this dualism it's just uh, it's it's inherent in, in liberalism and um yeah and unfortunately i don't really see us uh, yeah finding a way but the to to be honest, the, the the trans debate has probably gotten the hottest, the f fastest, and it really has. I've seen people really shift and and kind of look at liberalism. So, I I don't know. Do you feel like there there is a a point of of return from from this kind of slippery slope we've been sliding on for the last forty years? I think in a perverse kind of way, the trans issue has been a blessing for feminism. Mm -hmm. In that, particularly in the UK, I think maybe less in in North America, but um. Here, there has actually been a remarkable kind of grassroots movement from women who were previously not necessarily very engaged with feminist politics, but are so appalled by the prospect of, you know, people with penises in, in women's prisons that they um, have started to really, really engage and really think carefully. So we've, we've had a real influx of mothers, for instance, into, into a lot of feminist discourse and organising because mothers, funnily enough, are not easily fooled <laughs> when, when they're told that actually bodies are meaningless, um, which I think is actually really positive. So in a way, even though the trans movement is alarming, and as you say, is I think a, a very much a logical endpoint of the whole liberal project in terms of rejecting the body. Um, I'm also quite optimistic actually about there being some, some more thoughtful feminism to come out of it. Yes, I've, I've actually seen, because um, I, I probably would have identified as a kind of an anti-feminist or anti-feminist, uh, uh, you know, maybe a, a year or so ago. Now, I've, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but it's, um, it's just, I think it's just because, you know, I've, I've been talking to some, some very, um, you know, woke in the best of sense feminists, and uh, essentially, I, I don't disagree with them. I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with Mary Harrington. Um, you know, people who, like me, are invested in, in the, the female project. <laughs> but it's just, I think, you know, the, the heritage of the word, it's, it's just, a, it's super, super loaded at the moment. And, um, but at the same time, you know, on the other side, the anti-feminists, uh, you know, that's also kind of 
of a, a motley crew of people that I wouldn't necessarily associate with always. So uh, I think we're at, we're at the at the point in history where labels don't really you know don't really help. I, I think they hinder more than they help. It's you know I, I if someone calls himself a feminist, I have no idea what they believe at this point, and I think that's a good thing. It usually just means that they're like of a certain class, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's basically synonymous with progressive for most people. You're, but they're, if you describe yourself as a feminist, you're normally just telling someone that you have a postgraduate degree, <laughs> right? In effect, but I think that's um, I think that's wrong. I mean, there, there have sometimes been efforts to to buy some feminists, and I'm um, very sympathetic with to reclaim, for instance, women's liberation or was like womanist used by black Americans, you know, so there's, there's always going to be this kind of tussling over vocabulary, but I kind of figure that as long as you are just vaguely concerned with like protecting the interests of females, you should probably call yourself a feminist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we can have some looseness, you know, in the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll grant that. <laughs> um, <laughs> There, there was an article that you wrote a, a while ago during the, the Me Too uh, purges, and it was about Aziz Ansari, and I thought it really made a, a really interesting point, and you called it the, the Aziz Ansari paradox. Um, so for, for whoever doesn't remember the whole Aziz Ansari scandal, it was really scandalous because it was, it was quite an ambiguous situation. There was a, a date that went a bit a bit wrong. You know, there was some some intercourse that was ambiguous. You know, it wasn't really it, it, it just felt wrong. And I think, you know, the, the person described this in an article, you know, I think months after the fact. And uh, it was one of those situations where everyone had an opinion on the on the story. But I, I thought your take on it, you know, the, the paradox within the story was really interesting. Yeah, the, the paradox being that we, we tend to have much more um, media attention focused on the milder end of the sexual violence spectrum than on the more severe end. So that you simultaneously have people who will, women mostly, who will, who will, who will swear blind that Aziz Ansari is a rapist, right? For having not been sensitive to the signals that his date was giving off, you know, I don't think she described what he did as rape. I think she described what he did as as, as unpleasant or coercive. And mm-hmm. um, claim simultaneously that Aziz Ansari is um, is the villain in, in that story, but then will also deny the existence of like sex trafficking, um, mm-hmm. which is the most horrendous form of sexual torture and abuse that you can imagine, almost, and that. Paradox, <laughs> paradox is very strange. Um, similar, uh, similar, this is something that we saw a lot with Me Too, that we started off by talking about um, Weinstein, who is a rapist, rapist, you know, um, and quite quickly ended up talking about stuff that's much more ambiguous, you know, like whether or not men should ask out women on dates, whether or not it's okay to have any physical contact in the workplace, that kind of stuff that is quite kind of not necessarily very persuasive if what you're doing is trying to kind of convince people that there is a serious problem with sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think, I haven't read the article for a while, so I don't actually remember, but I, I, I remember mm-hmm. <laughs> my explanation for this is partly to do with the inevitable, the, the, the emphasis on personal experience from the women who tend to dominate in the media. You know, most people in the media tend to be um, uh, from the economic elites, um, t- 
tend not to be. I mean, just sort of by by women who suffer the most horrendous um, kind of sexual violence, like being trafficked or being victims of incestuous child sexual abuse, or that you know that sort of thing that are that kind of utterly destroys you, will tend not to find themselves in these kind of privileged positions with large platforms. And so the the emphasis on the kind of milder end of it is partly just to do with selection bias in terms of who's who's writing about it. You know, prostitution survivors don't tend to write for the New York Times, right? Um, at the same time, you also have, I think, uh, a uh, the signaling that goes on with people wanting to emphasize their own feminist credentials which means being the most astute at recognizing instances of of patriarchy you know the most sensitive to men pushing boundaries in the workplace etc etc um and and also just the fact that controversy is interesting, like the Aziz Ansari case was just amazing kind of media fodder because there was a discussion to be had about whether or not what was yeah. done was wrong. Whereas, you know, trafficked Romanian women, like anyone with, any, with half a brain will realise that that's, that, that's, that that's a horror. There's no yeah. debate. There's, there's definitely a, um, a, a big class issue in these in these debates. I feel like um, even even in Romania, you know, a lot of these conversations aren't had and you don't really hear about trafficking as much because these girls are, you know, they're from the countryside. They're they're no ones, essentially. They belong to people who who don't have the power to to claim them back and to, to make a fuss. And I feel like partly that's kind of what was happening with Me Too as well. This was the first release valve for the petty frustrations of people who didn't have necessarily uh, the tools to negotiate sexually because they were on the bandwagon of liberation. So they didn't really, they didn't want to set the boundaries. They didn't want to have the Amazon feminism to, to fight the fight. Uh, and this was the first time they could say, okay, I don't like this, but, you know, and the only frame they had was patriarchy and rape, and then, oh, therefore it is rape. Um, you know, the the nuance kind of went out the window with that. And um, it's, it's also really shocking the fact that, like you say, you know, um, the, the instances of actual sexual violence, trafficking, um, we, we had, I think, in the 90s, there was kind of a, a hot point where people were interested in it, but then I it kind of fell off the map. I mean, I'm curious, why why is it not a headline issue because it, it is happening every day yeah if anything it's considered to be in the say being anxious about sex trafficking and being anxious about pedophilia have both become kind of relegated to being quite low status sort of almost conspiracy adjacent mm -hmm. sort of concerns interesting like there, there's also you know the the, the rather case which is a very heavy thing in, in the uk and it's not just rotherham oxfordshire you know telford uh all of these places this this feels like a very low status concern like you said but the, it's the monstrosity of it still it, it has permeated through i mean is it is it just me listening to right-wing propaganda or is are people in the uk actually they do they know about this yeah, I find it really fascinating. I mean, I think the thing with Rotherham and so on is that because it's so strongly associated with um, with race, it became quite quickly a very toxic thing for anyone 
kind of progressive affiliated to speak about because it was it, it was it was seized on by people like um tommy robinson um and um it just sort of became culture war immediately and the 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 existence in the center of it all of these abused girls mostly and all just boys was just just forgotten and i think that the same thing has kind of happened with paedophilia that i i i've been writing about this recently actually for the, for my book the the way in which anxiety about paedophilia has kind of waxed and waned or has been dominated by particular um, political factions at different moments to the point where now, I mean, things like um, QAnon is 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 their their concern with paedophilia is, is very much viewed as being cranky, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a respectable thing to be really anxious about. That we have this um, urban myth in the UK, um, which I have heard so many times and, and heard repeated until recently, of this idea of um, uh, an instance in. Wales, where a paediatrician had her house vandalised or burned down, or you know there are various like permutations of this myth because the locals were whipped up by the tabloids into thinking that she was a paedophile, and they didn't understand the difference between a paediatrician and a paedophile. Right? This is this is a story that I've heard. I thought there are probably equivalents in other countries as well. It's a story that I've heard so many times. I looked into it recently. It's not true. <laughs> it was never true. Right, like what happened was that a woman who was a pediatrician, someone graffitied on her house something about pedos, mm-hmm. but it wasn't at all clear who had done it. That the belief was it was probably like a local group of local youths or whatever. She reported it to the police. Nothing came of it. Her house certainly wasn't burned down. She certainly wasn't assaulted by a mob. You know, there wasn't really any evidence that actually mm-hmm. this was down to any kind of tabloid confusion about paedophilia and yet it became this amazing urban myth and I think it's the reason is because it functioned it, as a way of kind of tarring what the, the, the work the hysterical working classes right mm-hmm. who was who you know who are, who are so anxious about paedophilia and who are so stupid that they kind of went to the difference between a paedophile and a paediatrician and so on and you sort of think well like if anyone had 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 come up with the story of Jeffrey Epstein, you know, it would have been viewed as a conspiracy theory. <laughs> it would have been it would have been viewed as entirely I you know, I don't even mean, you know, the, the, the man of his death. I mean just mean the fact of there being this kind of billionaire getting away with with um trafficking and abusing girls for years and years and the involvement of politicians and members of the British royal family and so on. Like it sounds like it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it isn't, it's true. It, it happened. Like this stuff does happen. And it's so it's so interesting to me that it kind of gets um, boxed away with other cranky right wing <laughs> um, concerns, even though it is absolutely real. And it's because some because some conspiracies are high status and some of the low status. Yeah, it's it's interesting kind of how reality has to bend to power. It's, yeah. uh, it's, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, there, there are things like, you know, that, that are trendy, like, like Live Aid used to be, and, you know, we were very, very concerned about malaria for a while, and very, very concerned about, um, I don't know, sanitation, you know, there's kind of these, these waves of things that are high status people care about. Um, but, you know, Coney 2012, or what was that, you know, it was another high status uh, movement. 
Um, but they, they kind of all get picked up and, and put down and the people, you know, who are actually suffering in these situations, they, they don't get relief or they get some, you know, extremely uh, engaged uh, participation and then people just move on to the next more interesting, more high status thing. Um, I think it's it's quite interesting, like your your campaigning and your work that you've done for um, you know victims and, and trafficking and actual you know violence. So, uh, could you tell me a little bit about what what your um, what your actual work involves? Like what 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 was the you know the um, yeah the, the NGOs you worked with or kind of what the what the efforts were? Because I feel like you know not not many people talk about it. And I'm curious, you know, what's 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 actually happening. So I work in a campaign group in the UK that um, um, documents cases where women have been either killed or very seriously assaulted and their attackers have claimed in court that they um, consented to the violence as part of rough sex mm-hmm. because we noticed that there had been an uptick in the number of um, defendants using relying on this kind of defense in court in homicide cases particularly and that it was often successful that they were able to, to persuade juries that actually this was a sex game gone wrong in this mm-hmm. um so in about half of cases it's um um it, like half the homicide cases involve strangulation but often actually very very um acute genital trauma or beatings or you know the stuff that, that actually it, every everything points to the fact of, of it being domestic violence and there being existing existing violence within the relationship and yet it was being framed as kinky right and it's, and it's mm-hmm. just kind of um a porn scenario gone wrong and of course these women are dead and they can't they can't give their side of it and so we started um documenting um these cases and found that there had been an uptick in number of men relying on this defense it's only men we've not found a single person in the uh, a single woman in the uk who's ever tried to use this kind of defense in court and also that they were they were they were having greater success in terms of persuading courts that the that, that violence had been consensual which shouldn't have been possible within the legal framework but was but but, but was nevertheless happening um and we did succeed in changing the law which should be well we have succeeded in persuading the government to change the law it's not yet actually happened but that will be happening this year um it's a really really good example of the influence of porn because it's quite yeah seeing the influence of porn on sexual culture is quite challenging because um there's no way of having a control group really because even people who don't actually watch porn when it's so ubiquitous it kind of filters out into the sexual culture and everyone ends up being influenced by it if you are if you are having sex if you're participating in this fundamentally relational act you're going to be influenced by by the culture which is now um which is now pornified right and and, and has been since the particularly since the advent of the internet um it can be quite hard therefore to unpick what exactly is going on in terms of you know we know that there's been a kind of pornification in terms of the sexual script um we know that there is a, a pornification of sort of um images in public spaces stuff like that but actually working out whether or not it's influencing what people do in the bedroom and how people understand it is harder um i think that actually that all the rough sex stuff is a really good indication that it is having an effect um we know definitely that it's more common now from from survey data. We know that it's more common 
for young women to, for instance, report being strangled by their partners um, with or without consent as part of sex. Much more common for women in the millennial age group and younger than older women. So that suggests that there's been some shift there. But also the fact that defendants are apparently finding it easier to persuade courts that actually women consent to the most heinous violence, like, you know, really like unimaginably terrible stuff. We're talking about like women having their, their throats slit by their partners in bed. You know, this isn't like, this isn't light BDSM, this is really serious. The fact that defendants are able to persuade courts that women would like that mm-hmm. and that they conceivably consent to and enjoy that is, I think, very good evidence of there having been this real shift in the sexual culture, which is clear, very clearly not to women's benefit. I mean, I don't think that we can, I don't think there's any way of, of seeing this phenomenon as being pro-woman in any way. Yeah, um, I mean, of course, the, 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 the pushback that we get from the BDSM advocates is that there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be strangled, wanting to have a throat held, a knife held to your throat, whatever. As long as, consent, as, long as there's consent, it's fine. But, you know, there are lots of objections to that point, but one of them is when it goes wrong or when someone has been killed and and, and the court is tasked with determining what happened, how do you know there's consent? (laughs) You know, you end up being in the position of of where we are with rape trials, where it is always, you know, regardless of regardless of the, the, the degree of like victim blaming among juries, it's always just very difficult to prove whether or not rape happened because sex happens in private normally and as long as both people are adults it can be very difficult to know whether or not there was a consent was present or absent and what way the the BDSM advocates are trying to do because there are some BDSM advocates who would like us to legalize almost everything as long as there was consent I mean there are some people who say that you should be able to be murdered by someone with consent and that should be an to which you have to say like how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to prove this when you're when you're faced with a, a, a dead body? You know, someone who consented to being killed and someone who didn't consent to being killed. It looks exactly the same. And so, what they are essentially what they are essentially arguing for is to make it as difficult to consent violence to 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 prosecute violence against women as it is currently to prosecute rape. Mm-hmm. It's extremely difficult. Yes. Yes. It, it is really interesting to kind of observe um, media for women as well. Like, um, you know, there's there's definitely an uptick in, in interest in, in BDSM type materials. I mean, you've had, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey and all of this. I'm curious how, you know, where where was the inflection point? Because, I mean, the, the, the rapturous, you know, dominant male fantasy has, has been, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous. You've had that from, you know, Harlequin novels, you know, th- that's always been the case, but um, it does feel like it's, it's kind of morphed into something a bit more edgy with, with current dynamics. And I feel like it, it feels like it, it is downstream from this. Yeah. Yeah. It's massively escalated. I think that, yeah, I think that, that, that it's important to remember that there's always been a, a, a strong note within women's erotic fiction of any kind of kind of um, female submission being sexy. Um, probably the best way of, I did probably the best way of explaining this is that um, women tend to be very turned on by male displays of desire in that the fantasy of being like so desired by a man that you will, that he will do anything to have you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
is very very dominant in 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 women's fiction and always has been because um probably for evolutionary reasons right like being being very strongly desired by a man who is is a, is a strong sign of him hanging around once you get pregnant um so i think that that's probably the seed of it and i think to some extent the, the, the young women now who are really into choking or whatever when they there's a trend for instance on tiktok of young women showing off their bruises that they've got during sex or boasting about how their boyfriends choke them and whatever and i think that in some sense what they're doing there is they're interpreting their, the, the violence as evidence of them being desirable and that they think that their that their boyfriends are demonstrating passion for them right and that they're, they're basically showing off about how how sexy they are which is sold as the hills like women always do this but i think that just in some sense there's a kind of mutual incomprehension because I don't think that is actually how the men are viewing it. That if you if you look at the um, strangulation porn or similar that's intended for a male audience or you or you hear testimony from men who have strangled their partners, they don't generally see it as a sign of passion, they tend to see it as a sign of contempt. So to some extent these young women are misinterpreting the signals and they think that they think that they're they're being they're confusing being desired sexually with being held in high esteem. Mm -hmm. And actually those things are not the same at all. Yes, I feel like um, with with men and, and sexual violence, there's always kind of a, a split because I, I've, I hear from a lot of men who are almost shocked that women want this type of behavior. Mm -hmm. Like most men are not necessarily sexually violent and just this this uptick has been quite a quite a shocker because all sorts of uh, you know kind of delicious taco style of uh, you know reveal uh, literature that you know people are always kind of <laughs> they're just saying that this is this is a very um, you know there's an uptick in in strangulation mm -hmm. for sure and requests for strangulation um, yeah, but the, the thing is, in, in a way, this kind of exposes these women to the, you know, to the fringe, to the few percentage points of men who, you know, will delight in, in strangling you and not for the, the same reasons. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, because some people might say that, look, what's the harm? Like, we've got a we've got a group of women who really enjoy rape fantasies, apparently. It is a minority, but it's like a substantial minority of women who have some degree of interest in this kind of fantasy. And then we've got some men who are perfectly happy to kind of to snap that fantasy. To oblige. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like why not just kind of get them together? But the problem is that what the women want is fantasy. They don't want to be actually raped. What they want is to kind of play act this kind of passionate display of dominance. And they end up seeking out men who actually are rapists. Right. And there's no there's no play acting about it. And I think that there's that really kind of painful mismatch. Um, and it partly comes from women not being given proper information about the dark side of male sexuality. I think this is one of the, 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 the common themes in so much. So much of what liberal feminism gets wrong is to do with not acknowledging the fact that men and women are different and not, and not acknowledging the fact that there, there, is, there is some minority of men who are genuinely dangerous do you um think that there, there's something to the fact that you know men have become more feminized and we, we see this you know in, in testosterone and sperm count in in quite even physically physiologically men have become more feminized not just social culture which can see every day um do you think that that kind of uh, provokes women into seeking kind of this this outsized uh, display of dominance uh that you see in, in bdsm 
I think that might be going on as well. I think also that there might be a, a sense in which some men want to overcompensate for feelings in that region, um, which is, and that emasculation is coming from the labour market primarily and, and, and mm-hmm. wider culture, which is um, in some sense undone traditional masculine sources of self-esteem and being sexually dominant can be a replacement for that. And I think that, as you say, for women, they might be, I think that I think there is a degree to which we've got rid of some more, um, uh, some healthier forms of gender difference and actually kind of can't tolerate it. And so end up filling that void with much more dysfunctional, much more extreme and monstrous forms of, of gender. I, I really reject this idea that you hear sometimes from BDSM advocates that BDSM is like um, uh, subversive politically and that it's like challenging gender norms. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's the most intensely gendered thing you could possibly imagine. Like the vast majority of doms are men, the vast majority of subs are women. Like what you actually see within the BDSM um, play acting is, is play acting at like the worst forms of masculine abuse and feminine submission um it's not subversive at all it's 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 deeply it's deeply traditionalist in a way but with any of the good aspects of kind of um, traditional sex roles stripped away Mm -hmm. it's um you've written before on on just the nature of consent and you know we hear all the time from from sex positive feminists that you know consent is the only lever we we have on this machine and it's the only one we're supposed to use and if you do use it correctly you'll you'll be fine um you know why why do you think consent is is insufficient as a as a norm because we exist within because sex is relational and we exist within cultures in which um some things are incentivized and taught and learned and, and you know we're not these kind of atomized individuals just kind of bumping into each other like the the sexual script presented to us is quite hard to maneuver out of and often you will i think that most people have have almost certainly had the experience of thinking that something was good for them and thinking that they were they were truly consenting to something only to later realize that actually they were just being that they were mistaken right like this idea of us as being the the um infallible arbiters of of of, of what is best for us at all times is kind of simple in a way like there's an appeal of of the of the consent narrative because it's you can just say whatever people consent like you just have this one rule and if you follow that rule then everything's fine like there's no need to think more carefully about what what is good and bad and what a sexual culture ought to look like and what and what the good life is you know like it's 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 a kind of get out of jail free like just play this one philosophical card and you're out there's no paternalism in it as well like you there's no one telling you you never have to tell anyone that they're wrong about what's good for them but people are wrong about what's good for them all the time Right, and I think that anyone with any kind of degree of introspection will realise that that, that, that that that's true of all of this, and particularly the young and the inexperienced who have no have they they've had no way of learning, you know, what 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 consequences are likely to come from certain actions, um, and so the problem is, you know, you will not struggle to find like teenage girls on TikTok who say that they love being tricked by their boyfriends, but they don't, and and they'll say that they consent to it gleefully right but the problem is that these girls don't don't they're 
extremely inexperienced, they're extremely naive about male sexuality, they don't really understand what this what the act means from their partner's perspective. I mean, and even aside from the fact that they don't understand the physiological consequences of strangulation, because hardly anyone does, it's actually much more dangerous than most people realise. It's not a kind of the benign fun sex act that is often presented as. Mm. And just to step into that and say, I will consent. <laughs> well, you know, it's just such a flimsy um it's such a flimsy moral framework and I think often we were talking earlier about me too and about women often describing describing bad sexual experiences which would not necessarily wouldn't necessarily meet the threshold of rape in a legal sense you know and that they they possibly did um they didn't say no or they or they they said yes but not very enthusiastically I mean you know that kind of gray area which is quite hard to legislate for but which definitely induces a lot of distress. Um, the only vocabulary left available for women who, who subscribe to the liberal feminist view of, of sexual consent is to say, is, is to talk about consent, is to, is, is to say that actually, I know, I, you know, I, 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 thinking about the Aziz and Zari example, for instance, to say that actually her consent wasn't real, blah, 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 rather than to say, like, she did consent in a legal sense, but what he did was still bad. You know, like there's a way of saying that that sexual morality has to be a lot more complex than just whether or not someone kind of signs on the dotted line in a, in a legal sense. But I, I feel like even even from the perspective of, you know, just in this case, you know, Aziz Ansari, uh, I feel like, you know, both participants have, you know, been been steeped in, in this um, ambiguity and in this culture. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know a lot of men who are like really not necessarily... Um, you know, they, they don't have any, you know, violent bone in their body, but they do engage in, in weird, confusing sex that ends up with the women being unhappy with the situation. And I feel like the ambiguity goes both ways. But like you said, you know, because of the power differential, uh, it might be a more scary situation for the woman. Um, but in a way, I feel like, you know, I feel like the, the onus is on the, the sexual framework on the society that should be there to provide a certain a certain guardrail, a certain stigma for certain sex acts or, or just just some some context of what one should be doing. Um, because I think, you know, like like I said, you know, the backlash, you know, uh, victim blaming, also not good, but also blaming someone like Aziz Ansari, who's, you know, just a product of his environment and the culture he's he's been living in, you know, Brooklyn or wherever, you know, whatever den of iniquity he's living in. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's also, I, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's clear who is to blame in these situations. Yeah, I can totally understand why, how men would, you know, we're, we're introducing boys to porn when they're children right like before they have any exposure to actual sexual relationships they're watching hundreds and hundreds of adults having sex on computer screens and in porn they will see women begging men to degrade them and to and 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 you know submitting to painful uncomfortable sex acts that most women actually don't like at all and then they have the kind of pop culture representation of sexual empowerment for women which which basically uh presents women having sex like men you know women women imitating male sexuality as being the the ultimate aspirational thing that women loving casual sex women um being just as horny as men just as voracious as men just as predatory sometimes as men you know this is very often what gets represented as being the like sassy strong female lead we we're exposing young men to this content and then we're surprised when they believe it (laughs) you know and 
actually a, a big part of what's going on is that we have this uh, collective discomfort with recognizing the fact that actually men and women on average are different in terms of sexuality and women do tend to be much less keen on having casual sex for instance and tend to be have put much more emphasis on things like monogamy and commitment not always there are some that are there, there absolutely are women who really um enjoy having sex like a man but but most women actually don't and will tend to participate in hookup culture not so much because they sincerely enjoy it. I mean, the vast majority of women don't orgasm during a casual sexual encounter, right? Like they're not getting, they're not getting very much out of it, but they do it because it's normative. And then the, and men also do it because it's normative. And then everyone is kind of confused about why it's not working and why they're all so unhappy. Um, and it's because, it's because the norm is bad, basically. Um, and there's kind of a, a collective failure to recognize quite how dysfunctional it all is. Um, which is, yeah, I, I think that one of the things I find so interesting about looking at um, the way that hookup culture has changed, particularly on university campuses, university is a really, really great uh, little venue to look at sexual cultures because it's basically a closed environment. And we know that there's been this huge tip towards um, more hookup culture, um, um, more kind of pornified sex in terms of what's considered normal sex, much more pornified, like really grim. There's been a massive, <laughs> there has been simultaneously um, among university students a rise in fellatio and a fall in cunnilingus, right? <laughs> because I know, because, and the, and the reason this seems to be in a, in a strange kind of way is because there has been an increase in the proportion of women uh, among university students. The majority of students are now female which means that within the heterosexual dating market, men are a scarcer resource mm -hmm. because they are a scarcer resource, they can set the terms of sexual encounters. Whereas on those campuses where men are the majority, we see the opposite. We see more commitment, more kind of going steady, students waiting longer before they have sex and so on. Like basically the sexual culture conforms more to female desire than to male because there is this fundamental conflict actually between the average male and the average female kind of set of desires and expectations and I think that, that that conflict is quite painful because it's not actually that easy to resolve you know like some so someone has to give somewhere we can't just say that um that there's no like happy harmony that just comes when you leave people to their own devices um which is I think a big part of why liberal feminism doesn't want to doesn't want to confront this because it's actually quite hard and it actually requires trade-offs which don't sit very well with a utopian worldview okay but actually, but actually, yeah, like there is a degree of sexual conflict. And I, I think at the moment, women are losing out in a, in, in a environment. So just partly to do with female agreeability and you know, all sorts of things contributing to that. Um, the feminists are cheering them on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I feel like the, you know, the situation that you described, you know, with, with there being more women than men on this, on, uh, campuses. Uh, mm -hmm. I think something similar is happening kind of in, in urban environments through the, the medium of, of app dating, because mm -hmm. you, essentially with app dating, just, just because of the, the, the way women tend to be pickier, you know, they have higher standards, the, the tendency is for women to end up dating, you know, a small set, a smaller set, you know, 10 to 20% of men, uh, which, which become a scarce resource, even though they, in reality, 
in in the real world they're not a, the scarce resource but they are the, the people that the the women go after so the, the the sexual culture there skews very strongly towards you know the one night stands towards the the you know the the casual sex um because of theirs there's kind of quite a limited set of men that are actually you know desirable on these apps yeah and so what you end up seeing on the apps is um basically polygyny developing mm-hmm. high status men having multiple women on the go or just having successive short-term ish relationships because they're not getting married they're not moving themselves in the dating pool and then you have a much larger group of low status men who aren't very attractive who get no sex whatsoever and actually kind of the funny funny the, the the peculiar thing about this is that that in the anthropological record is the most common way in which um mating happens like yeah. polygamy is actually our default liberal person. sexuality leads to polygamy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and actually in a way kind of way having institutionalized monogamy in the form of marriage is a way of working against that because it means that the high status men remove themselves from the dating market and so they can't like yeah, I think in a way we're we're in the worst of, of all worlds at the moment because theoretically you still have marriage. It's an option. It's it's there. Some people some people end up marrying. You know, good for them. Um, but and and women who are in these you know they they are in these games where they do you know end up going on one or two dates with like a high status guy that they're going to be pining after and um, you know they they think marriage is on the table eventually. It could be you know they're thinking about it, um, but it actually isn't in reality and they're 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 not playing the game they think they're playing um and i know a, a lot of women who are very very dissatisfied with the situation they're um you know they're yeah i mean it's it's very unsatisfactory um for once and I, I also know a lot of successful men who are not satisfied with the situation either because you know it's it's great to have a harem but uh it's also you know there's they're they're dating a lot of unhappy women so it's it's all no no one's really doing very well in these in these constellations it's said that anyone is doing well it's the high status men but i think in a sense um there are there are benefits from 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 playing the long game in terms of marriage that you can't get if you're tempted by the short-term gains of hookup culture. I, mean, I totally understand how tempting it is for, for, for men who are really reveling and how attractive they are, and they can suddenly get a load of cheap sex because suddenly this is this is you know this is the this is the norm that is available to them. I'm not sure if in the end it is a good strategy, and the, and and I think with men there's the same thing that there is with women, maybe less acute. Of actually, you can only really live the Playboy lifestyle quite a short period, like once you get past the age of, I don't know, 50, it's not cool anymore, right? Like the, the, the aging playboy is a pretty pathetic figure. And like by the end of his life, for instance, Hugh Hefner was, was no longer glamorous. He no longer had his celebrity acolytes and whatever. He was just kind of a dirty old man. And I think that this is potentially the risk that some men end up, the trap that they might end up falling into where they, where they, they never settle down. They never actually invest in any one relationship. And then they end up actually being kind of slightly sad. <laughs> yeah. I think um, that there's quite, quite a lot of guys, even, even younger who, you know, have the opportunity to do this, but you know, just, just chatting to you know people. Cause I used to live in London for five years and kind of in that, in that milieu. So mm-hmm. a lot of people are really unhappy. They would like to, to find a girlfriend, but there's the effect of the, 
you know, maybe the next one will have, you know, X attribute that I really think is really important. And then they're just continuously shopping around for this next woman. Um, even maybe if, if she's really high status as well, she might not want to be the one. And there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of trading up and trading down, which, which is facilitated by the simple ease of this machine. Cause you know, there's always someone at your fingertips. Um, I think, you know, a high status guy doesn't have the same, you know, time pressure as, as a woman, but they, um, they also essentially are, are sometimes stuck in these weird um, kind of uh, game theoretic equilibria that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not all roses for them either. Obviously, they're the best, the best place in this hierarchy, but still it's, it's, it's complicated. It doesn't really do anyone, uh, you know, complete favors. Yeah, it's also deeply um, unsexy in a way, kind of way. That the way that people experience using um, Tinder or some of the dating apps is um, most people re report finding Tinder actually kind of boring and depressing. It's like this, this like constant doom scrolling <laughs> through your sexual options. And, and um, I saw some polling recently that found that uh, Tinder and Grindr and some other dating apps were some of the apps that people reported having the least satisfaction with. You know, they actually en enjoyed using those apps almost less than any other, um, which is so strange, isn't it? Because because dating is supposed to be um, thrilling and sexy, and you know, and actually, there's a way in which when you have constant choice and constant availability, it kind of deadens that and makes everything boring and samey and replaceable. Um, I, I think this often as well about the ubiquity of sexual imagery in public spaces and on TV and whatever, and that actually, in a sense, when you make sex constantly available and there's no mystique and there's no degree in which it's kind of limited, you actually make it less sexy, you make it less appealing. So you have, and, and, and we do see this actually in the data in a weird kind of way, that we are the most sexualized culture you can possibly imagine in terms of what's um, available to us and what's, um, and what's kind of publicly presented, but we're actually having less sex than our grandparents were, which is largely to do with the fact that people don't get married until later. And even though this this is, you know, people are surprised by this, married people have more sex than single people do. So simultaneously, we're like extremely sexualized, <laughs> but actually not very sexually satisfied, which does seem like a very bad combination. Yes, absolutely. Um, before before I let you go, I have one one more question. This is a question of the show. Um, I want to ask you: Is there a thinker, a writer, someone you know, dead or alive that you think is uh, subversive? Uh, you know, might might be interesting to to my uh, viewership um, that people might not know about. Someone who might have influenced your thinking, or you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend because I think she probably hasn't been recommended before. Andrew Dworkin. Mm -hmm. I used to I was I started off as a radical feminist right before kind of moving to wherever I am now. Right yeah. on the yeah. fringes. Yeah, I'm an orthodox radical feminist, but like in a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that um, radical feminism says is, is true i think a lot of the policy proposals are absolutely right it's just whether or not the theory is right um and um Dworkin is an absolutely fascinating person to read and she's so um she's so of her time in a sense as so if these, these are historical documents the, the, the books that she wrote in the 70s and 80s um but also in a sense she was she was despised by so many people at the time you know and 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 continues to be and was such a um 
a strange and radical thinker. But actually so much of what she had to say was was really fascinating and interesting. I mean, start, for instance, by reading her writings on the Marquis de Sade. She was writing at a time where so many um, such revolutionaries thought that de Sade was glamorous and exciting and you know mm -hmm. and she was one of the few people who said what are you talking about this guy's this guy's um which is just so refreshing i just i i just always like reading people who are um who go against the grain yeah yeah i mean pa palia was a a uh aficionado of, of the marquis or at least uh, she, yeah. She, yeah, she thought he was uh he represented the the dionysian excess uh to to perfection which is yeah. quite scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, she, and, and also a defender of uh, Nambler, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's just quite a some some, some dark shades to Polya. I mean, I, I do I do like her writing, but uh, her her policy proposals and there, there's also the the idea that you know for someone who understands you know the the Dionysian nature of man, she was someone who really loved to to pour kerosene on on that fire. Like you know, it's, I, I've never really understood how she you know she was pro pornography, but she also said you know the the, the most peaceful times are are those where where marriage and and you know peaceful relations between the sexes are, are normative and um yeah i feel like um you know the contradictions in palia are, are infinite yeah Dawkin is not self-contradictory she's just very uh eccentric <laughs> <laughs> she's got a worldview you know <laughs> Oh, well, that's perfect. Thank you. I mean, it would, it wouldn't have occurred to me to read to read Dworkin. Uh, I'll I'll have to, I'll have to look into that. Um, and before uh, I let you go, is there a place where people can find your writing? Uh, where where can people uh, look up your your work? So I write a weekly column for the New Statesman magazine, um, and I occasionally write for other outlets in the UK, including um, Unheard, quite often. And I have an upcoming book, although I don't yet have a, a title or release date, but I have written almost all of the books. So. Oh, okay. Can you tell us a bit about the theme? It's about the cost of the sexual revolution and, and covers a lot of the same ground that we've just discussed. Um, yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I can't wait to read it. Thanks so much, Louise. Thank you so much. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>